World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For months, North Korea's leadership insisted the country didn't have a single case of COVID-19. At last, Kim Jong-un has come out with a shocking admission that things aren't going well with the pandemic or the economy. That is a huge understatement. And last year, Sierra Leone put out 1,566 different sets of stamps, mostly featuring dead white guys. For African countries, it's a tidy way to raise a bit of money from online buyers, but it's irking serious collectors. First up, though. Today, voters head to the polls for a general election in Jamaica. Last weekend, the two candidates appeared in a television debate to put their cases to the nation. Andrew Holness, the incumbent prime minister, accused his opponent of working to knock down progress. How could you come here now and put forward a manifesto in 2020 that would destroy what we have worked for for the last decade? But the opposition candidate, Peter Phillips, pushed back. 58 years after independence, Jamaica can do better. It's been a tough time for the region. In general, island nations have fared well during the pandemic, so the Caribbean has been spared the worst. But there have been recent infection spikes, including in Jamaica. Since the beginning of the week, Jamaica has recorded a huge spike in COVID-19 cases. Add to that the looming peak of the hurricane season. Whoever takes the reins in Jamaica, as elsewhere in the region, will be navigating extremely choppy waters. The incumbent is Andrew Holness. He won in February 2016 by the narrowest of margins. But Caribbean elections these days, they're not about policy. They're certainly not about ideology. Mark Wilson writes about the Caribbean for The Economist. They're about what you can actually achieve. And he carried out his major promise last time, which was to cut income tax, and uh, he seems to be seen as a good, safe pair of hands for a difficult situation. And and who is he up against? Who's the opposition candidate? The other side, we've got Peter Phillips. He's a lot older than Holness. He's 70, as against 48 for the current prime minister, and he's had a really tough year. He had to fight off cancer, and he had to fight off two challenges to his leadership from within his own party. On the opinion polls, he is way behind. Barring a huge upset, it looks like a strong win for the government. And, and we've sort of checked in with election campaigns around the world during the, the time of the pandemic. What has, what has Jamaica's been like? Well, it's completely shadowed the campaign. Caribbean election campaigns are normally almost like a street carnival. There's huge rallies and motorcades and with the constituencies being small, the candidates really try and meet every single voter in person if they can. 
there's been, you know, no big rallies. It's been much more impersonal, much more low-key. The man in an electoral Stevenson is an honest man, is not a thief. There's been a little spike, or quite a big spike, in the infection rate, which started a few days into the campaign on August the 19th, and that's put a further dampener on procedures. It's kind of lowered the mood in Jamaica quite a lot as well. And so has that played into the campaign itself? Is, is that a campaign issue? It hasn't really been a campaign issue. There's no kind of major, oh, the government's handling it wrong, the government's handling it right. But it's just something that has dictated the atmosphere of the campaign and thrown it right off guard, you know? The rate of infection is still way lower than, for example, in America. It's about one quarter of the uh, US rate of infection. So it's not actually a particularly unsafe place to go. It's just that it's got very much worse in the last couple of weeks. Is that to say that the, the pandemic hasn't had much effect on the economy either? No, it's had a huge effect on the economy. The economy is heavily dependent on tourism, and tourism just went out like a light in the middle of March. They reopened the island to tourists from mid-June, but people have not been coming in their normal numbers. So the arrivals figures have been about maybe 20% of the normal rate since mid-June, and not all of those arrivals have been what you'd normally think of as tourists. Many of them have been returning Jamaicans, coming home for family occasions, that sort of stuff. For people who do come as tourists, they've mostly been confined to the hotel property, which in a big all-inclusive like the Sandals Resorts isn't too much of a hardship. But they have not been going out to restaurants, they have not been going out to other attractions. So the whole industry is really, really down at the moment. And what about the economic picture beyond tourism? The other sectors of the economy have not been doing well. The second foreign exchange earner has been remittances from Jamaicans overseas, mainly in America, but also in Britain, Canada, Cayman Islands. The latest figures on those are for April, and they were down about 10% on a year ago. The bauxite industry, which I suppose is the number three earner, is not doing very, very well. And the traditional agricultural sectors like sugar and bananas are pretty much on shutdown. So the economic outlook is really very, very bleak at the moment. Although there's a certain amount of construction activity going on, particularly around Kingston, it's not completely dead. But the foreign exchange sections of the economy are just uh, pretty much out of it. And is that a similar story across the, the Caribbean, that, that the economies have been hit uh, by, by tourism, by dropping remittances? It's a story right across certainly the tourism-dependent economies, which is almost all of the islands. St. Thomas, we weren't allowed to leave the room, so we weren't able to obviously enjoy that port. And then from there on out, the, I guess St. Kitts, Barbados canceled us. Some of them have started to reopen to let back in tourists. They haven't all had the recent coronavirus spike, so a lot of the smaller ones, Antigua, St. Lucia, Grenada, and a few of those, there's about 10 islands which have literally had just one or two new infections over the last two weeks, which is really not too bad. But the infection numbers have really spiked in the Bahamas, in Belize, and then in Guyana, Suriname, and Trinidad, which are not really tourist economies. So as far as the, the islands that are very tourism-based, that have been hit very hard economically by, by the pandemic, how do you see things playing out now? 
A big threat at the moment is the hurricane season. We've already seen the devastating impact left behind in parts of the Caribbean. At least 10 people are dead in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. We're just going into the most active period of the season, which runs through September into the beginning of October. And we've seen more storms so far, although luckily there's been no major direct hit on any of the islands so far. But if there is, it's going to be very, very, very bad news with the pandemic going on. I mean, one consideration is that you can't possibly keep social distancing going in hurricane shelters. You can try, but it's not going to be easy. And then after the hurricane, if it's a bad one, you've got a long period with no electricity, no water, no phone connections, supplies running short. And that is going to be a complete and utter nightmare if that happens. And, and in the absence of, of a devastating hurricane, though, how do you think that these, these tourist-based economies can, can get kick-started again? Where we're going is really a question for the medical research people. Nobody in the Caribbean knows the answer. Nobody in the tourism industry knows the answer. It depends how soon we get a vaccine and how soon the virus comes under control in the major market countries in North America and Europe and also within the Caribbean itself. That's really what's going to count. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The August meeting of North Korea's Workers' Party began as it usually does, with rapturous applause for Kim Jong-un. But then the Supreme Leader told the party faithful that due to unexpected difficulties, his government had failed to improve the lives of the people or to meet its economic goals. And so a new party congress would be convened early next year to come up with a new five-year plan. That raised eyebrows. The country's dictators aren't given to self-deprecation. It's very unusual for the North Korean regime to make admissions about failure, whether about the economy or about anything else. Lena Shipper is The Economist's sole bureau chief. So the fact that Kim Jong-un personally said they'd failed to improve people's livelihoods earlier this year is very unusual indeed. And, and the failure to improve people's lives is, is, is largely economic in nature. I mean, how bad is the economy in North Korea? Well, so the North Korean economy was never particularly healthy to start off with. And then over the past few years, it's been made worse by economic sanctions that are designed to stop the nuclear weapons program, but also have all kinds of knock-on effects on the economy. And then this year has been hit by a double whammy of the wettest rainy season in years over the past couple of months, like terrible monsoon rains, flooding, devastating crops everywhere. And obviously on top of all that, we've had the pandemic which North Korea responded to by sealing itself off almost entirely. So one of the strictest quarantine regimes in the entire world. And has that has that worked? Has it managed to keep COVID-19 under control? 
So North Korea was one of the first countries in the entire world to shut down the border very soon after the initial outbreak in Wuhan and China. And for months, the regime insisted that North Korea was entirely COVID-free. There was widespread scepticism about that claim in the outside world. We don't know for sure, but in July... There was a repentant defector who returned from South Korea across the border between the two countries. And North Korea sort of used that opportunity and said, well, he's a suspected case of COVID. And the test they conducted on him was inconclusive. And since then, they've stopped claiming quite so fervently that they're entirely COVID-free. But they still haven't admitted that they have any cases of COVID, only that they've tested some people and that they're quarantining many but what about those strict and swift border closures? How How is that looking now? Well, there are a few points over the past few months where it kind of looked like it was easing a bit. We got reports of, you know, trucks getting through again or trains getting through again, sea routes being reopened. But recently that's tightened again. And for all we know, the border remains largely closed. Trade with China, which is the main trading partner that North Korea has, has all but ceased. During the first half of the year, the value of all the trade conducted between the two countries was $400 million, which is a reduction of two-thirds approximately compared with last year. So it essentially went from very little to virtually nothing. So a, a, a weak economy weakened further by, by natural disasters of, of more than one sort. What does that look like on the ground? Well, in spring, we saw the first results in Pyongyang in the capital, which is quite unusual because they tend to make sure that people in the capital are well-fed and it kind of looks good from the outside. So there were reports of usually well-stocked shops that ran out of or short of many consumer goods. They rationed staple foods like cooking oil. There were a few reports of North Koreans asking their foreign colleagues to buy scarce items for them from shops that are reserved for foreigners. And the fact that it was that bad in Pyongyang suggests that it's probably much worse in the provinces. We don't have any first-hand reports from there, or very few. But the likelihood that things are much worse outside of Pyongyang, where people can't see, is very high. We've had the uh, longest and wettest rainy season for many years, particularly North Hangwe province, where North Korea grows a lot of rice, has been particularly badly hit by the flooding. And even state media admitted in August that the flooding was probably going to affect the harvest. And we've got typhoon season, which is just starting, which is probably going to lead to more floods. So everything is going to get worse. And so how much do you read into this unusual admission of of culpability and and, uh, amid all of these challenges? Well, it certainly suggests to me that the regime is concerned by the devastation, the economic devastation caused to people's lives. You know, Kim Jong-un has been very keen to showcase his concern. He's gone and toured some of the flood-hit areas. He's been very down on bureaucrats who are embezzling aid funds and are not doing enough to rebuild infrastructure quickly enough. And there's been the announcement that because the most recent economic plan had failed, they're going to have a party congress in January and announce a new five-year plan. So the sort of promise that they're going to think about it and things are going to get better in the future. So clearly they're trying to appear as though they care and as though they're really trying to help people. And, And what about beyond the government? Is there any international support coming through? In normal times, outside of you know, COVID and whatnot, humanitarian organizations from outside of North Korea would now be gearing up to send water pumps and food aid to alleviate the impact of all these catastrophes on ordinary people in the North. And those efforts have never been straightforward because North Korea is very obsessed with this idea of self-reliance. They don't really need the outside world. They can go and manage on their own. And the determination to isolate themselves in the context of the pandemic makes it all the more difficult. Kim Jong-un has 
despite showcasing his concern, has rejected offers of foreign help. The ostensible reason for that is that that's going to bring the virus into the country. But clearly, there are also other motives there. And um, the other problem is that because of the COVID quarantine, the vast majority of foreign aid workers and diplomats have been forced to leave North Korea. And the few who remain behind are barred from leaving Pyongyang, so they can't really go and see what it looks like out in the field or visit any aid projects or do any on-the-ground work. I mean, it's it's rare that a um, happy people story comes out of North Korea here, but this does seem to be a confluence of, of really bad conditions. How bad do you think this could get? This is a very challenging situation, even by North Korean standards, you know, even for the usual misery that people have to endure there. This is worse than your average bad year. It doesn't look as though it's going to get quite as bad as what happened in the 90s after the public distribution system collapsed and there was widespread famine in the entire country. So people aren't seeing that just yet. But it's just going to lead to a sort of low-level increase of misery over the next few months and probably a couple of years. Thanks very much for joining us, Lena. Thanks very much for having me, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. Len Hutton was one of the great English cricketers, a fine batsman, a taciturn Yorkshireman. He scored 364 runs in the fifth Ashes Test match in 1938. Adrian Blomfield is our East Africa correspondent. If you are a cricket fan, you will know who Len Hutton is. The Central African Republic, on the other hand, is not a country with much of a cricketing pedigree. It doesn't even have a cricket team. So it seems a little strange that in 2016, the Central African Republic chose to issue a set of commemorative stamps to mark the centenary of Len Hutton's birth. And what's odder still, the Central African Republic wasn't the only country that chose to commemorate the centenary of Len Hutton's birth. Niger did, and so did Mozambique. That's not the only example of commemorative stamps that seem like unusual choices. Far from it. This proliferation of postage is infuriating the collectors of the serious stuff. Sometimes it's also the anniversaries themselves. So possibly you can imagine that you might mark the centenary of an international figure in art. But why did Sierra Leone in January choose to mark 395 years since the death of Jan Bruegel the Elder? Ten years ago, Guinea-Bissau marked the 260th anniversary of the death of Johann Sebastian Bach. This year, Djibouti did the same for the 270th anniversary. So what's behind this? Why are these countries celebrating these figures on, on odd anniversaries? Normally, countries issue stamps to show off their beautiful countryside, their flora and their fauna, to celebrate national heroes or landmarks. Uh, But there is a rationale for printing the stamps of long-dead foreigners. So if you wanted to walk into a post office in Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, you would find it very difficult to buy a Len Hutton stamp. What's going on here is that there is an aggressive marketing of the collector's market because there are collectors who will scour the internet and they're going to be very happy to pay quite handsomely for Len Hutton stamps or Modigliani stamps And it's a handy way for poorer African states who might not have much of an international presence to boost their revenues. And how long has this kind of thing been going on? Is this a new trend? 
There has been this tendency to issue stamps for the collector's market for about 70 years, according to a chap I spoke to, Ian Harvey, at the Royal Philatelic Society of London. It started when decolonization happened, and a company in America actually started to represent newly decolonized countries to help them with their postal services. But then I think some countries started to notice that this was a way of making money. And and some collectors I've spoken to mark 1981 as the point where things began to happen. And 1981 was the year of the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. And a number of African countries issued stamps to commemorate that. And they started to notice that that did pretty well in the collector's market. But in the last few years, there's been an explosion in this. And this is causing the serious stamp collectors, those who collect stamps for money as an investment, to have kittens. And why is that? Several African countries, and not just African countries, one or two smaller countries like Vanuatu, for example, went to a Lithuanian-based outfit called Stamparija and got them to design and print their stamps. And the serious collectors will tell you that Stamparija has flooded the market with tat. What one collector said to me, Stamparija's stamps are very numerous and frequently awful. Sierra Leone last year churned out 1,566 different sets of stamps, many of them showing long-dead white men. Whereas India, with a population of more than a billion people, issued just 139 sets of stamps. But what's the problem here? If there is a thriving market for it and people are buying them and people still find whatever novelty they find in it, then what's the issue? That is exactly the case. Postal officials, I spoke to one in Sierra Leone, who said people want to buy these stamps. We're willing to sell them. It makes us money. So what is the problem? Why are collectors grumbling? What some of the collectors are saying is that it's cheapening the brand of these countries. And also, is it appropriate particularly in this day and age. So a lot of collectors will be finding stamps from countries that they know little of and believe that those countries spend most of their time apparently celebrating those dead white men as their heroes. And so there are suggestions that what is going on here, essentially, is postal imperialism. Adrian, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.